First scripture reading uh, this morning is from the first chapter of the gospel according to Mark, and that's on page 32 of your um, Bible uh, in the New Testament, of course. So we're going to read Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Israel were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thongs of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. May God uh, bless the reading and hearing of his word. From from the prophet Isaiah, the 40th chapter, verses 1 through 11. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out, In the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Then... The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry out! And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord comes with might. And his arm rules for him. His reward is with him. And his recompense before him. He will lead his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Join your hearts with me in prayer. In these shortened days of Advent, when darkness seems to come early and sun's rise seems late, 
Allow our hearts in that darkness to be illuminated by your light. It will glow and kindle into a fire from which all the world might find warmth. To the glory of Christ, your Son. Amen. It is the second Sunday of Advent, and already the scriptures are shouting to us some unsettling facts. John the Baptist, a wild man knee-deep in river mud, howls to the crowds about the coming day of the Lord. They call him the baptizer, which at the time would not have been a compliment. John the baptizer, the one who gets you all worked up into a weeping frenzy, not about the social order or the oligarchs or the Roman authorities, not even about the privileged grinding the oppressive submission. John who concluded his sermons with an invitation to plunge into the dirty water of the Jordan, is talking about righteousness. True liberation, says John, does not come from overturning the social structures or raising an insurrection to fight the power. John exclaimed that the divine transformation required an authentic transformation of the heart, a repentance, not a change of one's worldview but a change of one's understanding of oneself. The metaphor is not lost on the gathered crowds. The Jordan River was a very special place in the people's history. Transformations happened there. The idea of being one kind of person before you get into the water and another when you come out of it was long established in the history of the people. The Jordan River was where Joshua led his wandering country from being wilderness nomads into being children of a promised land. They'd been camping on the plains of Moab, and we read just a few weeks ago how centuries before John the Baptizer, Moses had ascended into Nebo, the height of Mount Pisgah, right there on the plains and over the plains of Moab. The people behind him, him looking forward to the west across the land of promise into which he would not go. But only two months after his death, Joshua leads them across that same river into the land of promise, across the river Jordan. That's where John was preaching. The same place where Elijah and Elisha spent their last hours together as Elijah took Elisha across the river Jordan. And it was there that they stood And the chariots came down, coming for to carry him home. And they believed that because Elijah never truly saw death, that would be the prophet that would return and bring the message of the coming Messiah. It would make sense for the prophet to return there on the banks of the Jordan River, the very spot where Elisha saw Elijah carried away into the clouds. So here it is. Second Sunday of Advent, candle two, and the prophet and the baptizer are telling us to prepare the way for the Lord. A grand construction project is envisioned by the prophet Isaiah where mountains are leveled and valleys filled in. We, of course, would think that to be an awful thing. Why would you tear down mountains? Why would you fill up canyons? They're so beautiful. But the only way that we know they are beautiful 
is because some construction crew built us a road that would allow us to get to them. How did they do that? They tunneled through mountains and they filled in gullies so that we could get there. Ah, you might say, what if I fly? Somebody had to build a smooth runway for you to be able to land in Calgary and drive west to the Canadian Rockies. If someone wouldn't have made the path smooth, you wouldn't know that it was a beautiful view. Of course, neither John nor Isaiah are talking about a literal construction project. They're not envisioning backhoes or steamrollers. The road that they believe needs straightening out is a metaphor about the impediments in our hearts, the boulders of arrogant selfishness, the valleys of presumed helplessness. Flatten those out, say the prophets, in order to make them straight for salvation to come. Strangely enough, Isaiah meant for these words, echoing again in the shouts of John the baptizer, to be words of comfort. Comfort my people, God tells the prophet. Speak tenderly, tenderly. A tone of comfort, like a lullaby. But just like a lullaby, it's a little jarring when Isaiah asks about the content of his words of comfort. Cry out, God tells him. What should I cry, he asks. Bring them comfort, says God. Tell them all flesh is grass. Their constancy is like a flower of the field. Grass wither, flowers fade. When the breath of the Lord blows upon them, surely the people are grass. How is that message comforting? It's like when you realize the perilous nature of the lullaby, rockabye baby. You're in the treetops, swaying in the breeze. The little tree breaks, and the cradle comes crashing down. How is that supposed to help a child fall asleep? Comfort. We are to take the solace and peace of this message. And the message is this. Everybody is going to die. The prophet thought so, and the people understood. Isaiah and John, in their duet message through the centuries, all of this is going to fade. It's going to wither like grass. Their message is this, that in the end, it is all going to fade and that should bring us comfort. Or the message to us might be this. Guess what? At the end of the day, politics doesn't matter. Oh my goodness, that's a cold slap in the face. Here on the second Sunday of Advent, all the things that we worry about most are in the end actually nothing, nothing but kindling for the consuming fire. Yesterday at Derek Metcalf's memorial, Colin, his son, in his eulogy, referred to his dad's optimism. You didn't actually think I'd get through the service today without mentioning Derek, did you? He pointed out that Derek's optimism was perhaps a great contrast given his upbringing. One would not experience, born in the place and time, that he would end up being so positive. His father was a World War I wounded veteran. 
having lost significant lung function in the trenches of the Great War. Derek was born shortly before the firebombings of the Luftwaffe. Brits, Brits all hunkered down in subway tunnels and bomb shelters just a month before his 13th birthday. In a single night, January 15, 1941, 50 bombs were dropped on Derek's hometown. Dozens were killed outright. Hundreds were wounded. During the course of the war, his own hometown lost over 4,000 homes. In the course of the war that hit his town most pointedly shortly before his confirmation age, he still found optimism that lasted a lifetime. Examined in the light of the prophets, it does, I believe, make some sense. The optimism born of knowing that even the most frightening circumstances in the history of the world are transient. They'll wither, they'll fade. They're like flowers, they're like grass. It's a message that might bring us just a little little solace in these troubled times. Currently, we are, as a nation, arguing over the potential political victory by choosing between two honestly elderly men. Our future hangs in the balance, we are told, in a choice between two candidates that honestly don't really have that much future. Those who find salvation in politics believe what they want to believe, all out of proportion, that you should be loyal to your anxieties and worship the impact of your vote, as if civilization and the world hangs in the balance as you hold your little ballot pen or poke your choice on a touch screen. Just a few months ago with the release of the movie Oppenheimer we were supposed to be perpetually worried about nuclear annihilation. That distracted us for about two weeks and drew our attention away from the AI apocalypse which had supplanted climate change right after we've been so worried about Ukraine, which is now balanced against panic about the southern border, pitted against Palestinian humanitarian relief. Hell forbid that we stand one moment long enough to think about whether or not a problem can be solved before we're exploited in our anxieties to move on to the next one. We work ourselves into a natural, national frenzy where statesmen and women call each other's angels and demons, where family members no longer speak to one another and neighbors turn block parties into street brawls, believing their open hostility is justified because somehow these things are so very important. And a voice, a voice cries in the wilderness, get a sense of proportion. These things are not eternal. And forfeiting a sense of decency and pretending that these things are linked to eternity is idolatry of the lowest order. The ideological barriers that we are in the process of constructing, the emotional trenches that we dig, the political bombs that we drop, the gotcha sniper shots that we fire, and the very impediments that we construct as we turn molehills into mountains and ditches into canyons, these do not make way for the coming of the Lord. 
Our problem is not a matter of politics. Our problem is the way that we have made politics matter. Comfort. Comfort, says the prophet. They're going to wither and pass. They're going to be like grass or flowers. But the word of the Lord is what stands forever. So as we go through our days and, and discern our comparatively trivial and limited political opinions and options about which we dither, in our hearts should always echo a deeper value. The value of the second Sunday of Advent. Words that we will sing together in just a few moments. And we sing these words every year during Advent and again on Christmas Eve. We pray them through every December Advent cycle. And we should pray them through every news cycle and November election cycle. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart, born the people to deliver, born a child, yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. Be thy own eternal spirit and rule in all our hearts alone by thine all-sufficient merit. Raise us to thy glorious throne. Amen. Please stand and speak with me our affirmation of faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his 